witnesses of his majesty is the subject today on the lesson 9 on 91. And we're going to be studying out of two texts, and Benny read one of them. Uh, first one's going to be Matthew 17, first eight verses, and then the other one on the next page is going to be 2 Peter 1, 16 down through 21. This lesson today is really uh, dealing with the account of what important event that happened in the Gospels. Transfiguration of Jesus is really what the lesson is dealing with today, and we're going to have the account of it here in, in Matthew 17, Matthew's account of it, and then uh, we'll have Peter's um, account of it, you might say, in 2 Peter 1. Peter was there was as an eyewitness, and he gives us his uh, eyewitness account and impressions of what was going on, so it's a good lesson. I enjoyed working on it this week. So flip over and let's look uh, first of all at the introduction down here at the bottom of 92. So I was studying this lesson. Uh, whoever did the, the commentary and the introduction, I think, did a really good, really good job on this. I don't know if they have the same, same people, the same men doing every lesson, but whoever did this one, he did a really good job on explaining uh, the introduction and making some good clear points. So let's look at it. Introduction down there at the bottom of 92 says that we gain knowledge in two basic distinct ways. So what's the first one? First hand. First-hand experience. We all gain information and we gain knowledge by experiencing things in our lives firsthand for ourselves. First-hand information. And he goes on to th say we're talking about things that we're able to touch and even taste and see and hear and smell. First-hand information. And he goes on to say that's how the Apostle John knew Jesus, and he mentions the opening verses there of 1 John, uh, where John wrote, that which was from the beginning, which we have, what? Heard, John was able to hear Jesus, which we have seen with our eyes, he was able to see him firsthand, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Life was manifested and we have seen. And so therefore we what? We bear, we bear witness. First hand information, John had been with Jesus. He had seen Jesus. Uh, and he could bear witness of him. And declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So John did not need somebody else telling him all about Jesus uh, because he had been there. We sometimes say been there, done that. He had been there and experienced Jesus. He had heard Jesus speak words of eternal life. He had seen Jesus with his own two eyes, work miracles. He had looked upon Jesus, saw him hanging on the cross placed his hands upon the resurrected Lord. He had touched him. 
Jesus lived as God in the flesh, it says, and John had witnessed that firsthand. So that's the first way that we gain knowledge uh, by firsthand information, firsthand experience. And then the next paragraph there on page 93, second one, says that besides gaining knowledge through personal firsthand experience, what's the other way that we, we gain knowledge and we gain truth? Testimony of other people. Testimony of the, the reliable testimony of other people. Because sometimes things that we hear are not credible and not reliable, but if it's credible information, we can gain knowledge in that way. Credible testimony of others. And he gives an example, pretty good little example. So for example, we don't have to, to burn our hands on a hot stove as children to know what? Don't touch it. You don't have to learn that really by first-hand information, hopefully, uh, because what's another way we can learn that lesson? Listen to what parents and mamas tell us. If you touch that hot stove, you're going to get burned. It's going to hurt. If we pay attention to that, then, then we can learn that information in that way. Says we can be just as certain about facts learned in this way as facts that we experience firsthand, if again, if the testimony is credible and reliable. And so Luke makes this point in the introduction to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1. He says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word deliver them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So uh, the point there is Luke was not an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry, but he was able to do what? Absolutely. He was able to give, he calls it an orderly account, a complete account, a thorough, accurate account of what Jesus did and who Jesus was. Um, was who was Luke at the beginning of his letter? Who was he writing to specifically? A man named Theophilus is who the letter is really addressed to, so he was capable, he's saying there, of providing Theophilus with credible information about Jesus, certainty he calls it, and therefore Theophilus was able to learn about Jesus from the testimony of Luke. So... Next paragraph says, our situation today is similar to that of this man Theophilus that Luke is writing to. We don't have the ability and the privilege today of actually, as, as uh, we said, being with Jesus, seeing Jesus, touching him, hearing him firsthand. Uh, we can't place our hands on his resurrected body, but nevertheless, we can what? We know him through the testimony of 
the writers in the New Testament, the inspired writers of the New Testament. Nevertheless, we can believe. It says, we have certainty regarding his life and death and the resurrection because we trust what? testimony of the writers of the Bible all the way through. So he says, Jesus had us in mind in John 20, 29 when he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have what? Believe. So today in the lesson text, uh, the point, point he's making here is that we're going to see in the, in the lesson today both ways of gaining knowledge, first-hand information and then by the testimony of others. Peter tells us, Peter affirms that he was one of the what? Title of the lesson, eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter saw Jesus, observed him, um, he was an eyewitness of his life on earth. Second um, Peter 1, uh, God speaks from heaven, which we're going to talk more about in the lesson. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Peter was there. He heard that firsthand, firsthand experience. So because of that, he calls upon his readers then to heed or to listen to his testimony. We did not experience Jesus being transfigured firsthand, but Peter did. He was there. He saw it. He heard it. And so we can trust and then we can act upon his experience, his report. So any thoughts or comments, questions about the introduction there to the lesson, about the two ways that we gain information? All right, then. Let's look at... <clears throat> The text today, many read this, but I think we'll have time to reread it. So let's flip back and let's read Matthew 17, first three verses uh, that we'll be looking at in this next section about a select occasion. So Matthew 17, 1 through 3. Now after six days, Peter, took, Peter James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Granny, if you don't care, put my laptop on the screen up there. Got a little something we're going to look at right here that's not really dealt with and mentioned in the lesson, but I thought it might be interesting right here to to see and talk about just a moment or two. Okay, let's, let's talk about the question before we really get into the account of the transfiguration. Uh, let's talk about the question here. Where did the transfiguration of Jesus happen? Who has an answer to that question? Okay, you mentioned there that what we read there which we're going to talk about, it says a high mountain is where Jesus took Peter, James, and John into a high mountain. Do we know anything else about the location, the mountain where the transfiguration happened? Okay, well, maybe, maybe. 
not. Maybe not. The Bible actually doesn't tell us uh, anything specifically about the mountain. You know, we do have other mountains mentioned in the Bible, like Mount Sinai, where important events happen. But here with the transfiguration, in this account, uh, Matthew's account, or anywhere else, we don't have any information specifically about the mountain where this happened. Uh, but as we said, we know from verse 1 that we just read that it was a high mountain. Now, Bible scholars today believe that the transfiguration happened probably on one of two mountains uh, in the country of Israel at that time. And one of the possibilities is this one here in the picture, uh, which is called named Mount Tabor. Uh, Mount Tabor, you could say, is the traditional location. If you're just looking at human tradition, all the way back to maybe about the third century, people were believing that this was the mountain where the transfiguration happened. Uh, are traditions always accurate? No, you've seen, if you've seen my Holy Land presentations, we, I, I kind of deal with that in, in one of those about how human traditions are not always, uh, not always accurate. But this is the traditional location. That mountain, that's not really a super high mountain. It's 1,186 feet above sea level. Compared to the area around it, it's a, it's a pretty good sized mountain, but whether that qualifies as a high mountain, that could be, I guess, debated. Uh, this location is near the Sea of Galilee. It's not far from Capernaum, not far from Nazareth, where Jesus often was. It's kind of in the central part of uh, the country of Israel today. So that is a possibility, one of the possibilities of where the transfiguration happened. Uh, this location may have been a military outpost during the time of Christ. And if that was a military outpost that was occupied by, say, Roman soldiers, that probably would lessen the chance that this was where the transfiguration happened. But uh, again, we're not sure. The other possibility is this mountain. This today is, was in the northern part of Israel, in the more mountainous area. This is uh, called Mount Hermon. And you can tell there that's a higher mountain than Mount Tabor. Uh, this is actually the highest mountain in the, in the entire region. It is 9,232 feet in elevation. Uh, this location... One of the things in favor of this one being the, the mountain where the transfiguration might have happened, this location is near Caesarea Philippi. It's only about 14 miles from Caesarea Philippi. And that's where previous events happened in Matthew 16, shortly before the transfiguration. Anybody recall what important event happened back in Matthew 16? without looking at him. Jimmy? The confession, the great confession of Peter. Uh, Jesus asked his disciples uh, who were there with him, who do you say that I, who do men say that I am? And they answered that. And then who do you say that I am? And you remember that Peter 
course, was always quick to speak up. And Peter spoke up, and he made what confession? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And on that confession, the church today is based. So that was a, a major event that happened right there in the region of Caesarea Philippi. And that happened evidently just previous uh, to the transfiguration, previous chapter. So because of the location of Mount Hermon, 14 miles away, I mean, this could be a possibility for the location. But again, we don't know. But I thought that information might be kind of interesting to you as we're studying about the transfiguration, those two possible locations. So um, let's look at the commentary there on page 94 under a select occasion. So as we read there, Jesus takes three of his disciples, which three? Peter, James, and John, um, and he takes them up on a high mountain by themselves, and there is where the transfiguration happened. And the commentator goes on to, to make the statement why Jesus took only these three apostles, uh, not the other nine. That's not mentioned in the text. We don't have any really information about that, but he mentions that we know the same three, Peter, James, and John, were allowed to go with Jesus when he raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead in Luke chapter 8. Uh, those three were there on one other important occasion. Gethsemane, you remember, on the evening of his betrayal, uh, Peter, James, and John were there in the garden, and uh, what, did they, what did they do that did not please Jesus? Uh, he had to awaken them from sleep three times. Couldn't stay awake there in the garden, but they were there. Um, before his betrayal in Gethsemane. Um, he mentions there H. Leo Bowles uh, made this statement, Jesus was not partial to these three, but maybe they were better prepared in heart and life for these events, these scenes, and that's why he picked these three to be present at some of these events that we've mentioned, like the Transfiguration. And so they witnessed a an amazing, a remarkable event. So Matthew writes there in verse 2 of uh, chapter 17 about the transfiguration. His face, that's the face of Jesus, shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. And he mentions there that change is similar or compared to what took place when Moses uh, stood before God where? Mount Sinai, we do know where that happened on Mount Sinai. Matthew 17, verse 3, Moses and Elijah here on the Mount of Transfiguration, they appeared to them, talking with him, talking with Jesus. They appeared. Um, and he makes the point here, this is important, that Moses and Elijah represented what two important groups of people? The law and the prophets. Moses represented law, lawmakers, giving the law being given, the Old Testament law, and then of course Elijah represented the prophets. 
And they were held in high regard, of course. One commentator says Jewish people expected the return of both Elijah and Moses at the end of the age. Jewish people <clears throat> believed that would happen. They would come back at the end of, end of time, end of the age. But as we're going to read on, the apostles were about to learn firsthand what important lesson. Jesus is far superior. Jesus is number one, superior to all. So we'll read on here and find out how that lesson is made. So any questions, thoughts about that first section there about a select occasion? All right, let's read, uh, go back and read 4 through 8 in Matthew 17. Verse 4, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So look there on, at the bottom of 95 at a contemporary response. So as we read, Peter says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. And we might say it today, we're glad to be here. If you wish, and here was Peter's idea that kind of popped into his head. We'll talk about it here in a minute. Uh, if you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now Mark's account of this, in Mark's account, uh, Mark gives us some uh, additional information of kind of why Peter may have said that. What's, what's, the, what's the reason? Afraid, I mean, that would be a fearful thing to see. Jesus and then Moses and Elijah appearing there with him, that would cause fear in any of us. And Mark says in his account in Mark 9, because he did not know what to say. <laughs> so he just came up with that and said that. Well, let's build three tabernacles. Uh, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, sometimes it's better to say nothing uh, rather than not being sure of the truth and the accuracy of what you're saying, absolutely. So God spoke from the heavens and stepped in and intervenes, and uh, verse 5 there that we read, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying this, and that this refers to who? That's Jesus. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Hear him. So he says if there was any confusion, any uh, uncertainty about how Jesus ought to be thought of in compared to Moses and Elijah, if Peter or the others were somehow thinking that, you know, they're all three kind of equal, 
what was spoken there by God should have corrected that. Because there what God said is making crystal clear that Jesus is what? Superior to the law, superior to the prophets. He mentions there that what J.W. McGarvey wrote, um, the words uttered are a repetition of the, the oracle which was heard where? What? what? Uh, the, the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River. After the baptism of Jesus, uh, the same statement was made by God uh, but here, two words, two important words were added. Hear him. So God was saying that Jesus, as we said, is superior to the law and the prophets, superior to Moses and Elijah. So he says that command, those two words, really contain the chief significance of the whole scene, the whole transfiguration scene. In the presence of Moses, the great lawgiver, and Elijah, the great prophet, this meant that Jesus should be heard in preference to the law and the prophets. Jesus was superior. His word was superior. So then in verse 6 we read, what was the reaction then of Peter, James, and John? As we said, that would be a fearful thing to be witnesses, eyewitnesses of all of that. They fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But rather than allowing them to remain in fear, uh, verses 7 and 8 that we read, Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, what did they see? Nothing but Jesus. Moses and Elijah vanished. They'd gone. Nothing but Jesus was there. But the event they had witnessed wasn't a dream, wasn't some kind of hallucination. It was real. They saw the transfiguration of Jesus. They heard his exaltation. They felt his touch when he touched them. So that was a moment that surely those three men Peter, James, and John would not forgive. And it was a moment they would tell others and write about to others. So any questions or thoughts there, comments about that's that part of the text in Matthew 17? All right then, let's move over into 2 Peter. And let's read the text here in 2 Peter 1, 16 down through 21, back on page 92. And we'll look at Peter, of course Peter was an eyewitness, so we'll look, look at Peter's account of what happened and why this account was important. So Peter writes, For uh, <clears throat> we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Verse 18, And we heard this voice which came from heaven, and 
when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So flip over to page 97. Let's look at a reflective remembrance, that section. So um, Peter, it says, did not intend to let his readers believe that his testimony was anything less than what? The real thing, less than genuine. He wanted to make that crystal clear. So there in verse 16, as we read, he writes this, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables. What are fables? Made up stories, made up stories, fiction, fictional stories, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He mentions there two commentators said this, um, false teachers label the truths that Christians believe as make-believe, that sometimes that happens today, make-believe, fiction, just stories that are made up. But Peter is here saying, and he responded that he was speaking and writing about spiritual facts and spiritual truths, and he was not just making all this up, embellishing a story or inventing some story. This, this actually happened. So then Peter goes back and refers to uh, this event that we're studying today that he witnessed firsthand, the transfiguration. And there in 17 and 18, we read what he said. Uh, he mentions the, the statement that God made, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. We were there. We saw this. We heard this. First-hand experience. So the evidence that Peter there is providing was strong, compelling, um, First of all, he had been not been alone on the mountain. If Peter had been alone there by himself, how would that possibly have lessened his, the power of his testimony? Just like us today. Nobody, nobody there to confirm his statement and to back up his account of it, right. But he was not alone. James and John were there too. Number two, uh, he says, unlike the false teachers, Peter had been there with the Lord. Number three, he had not only seen, he had heard, heard the voice, God's voice from on high. So Peter then concluded that both, both that prophecy had been confirmed and he also concluded that his readers, his audience, needed to do what? Needed to pay attention to it and hear and believe and follow Jesus. He can... Yeah. 
Right, right. And that's kind of the point Peter here is making. Uh, that's one of the, one of the uh, strengths of his statement. Uh, he mentions there what uh, what Guy and Woods observed about uh, transfiguration. He says, the transfiguration scene confirmed the testimony of these prophets concerning the deity of Jesus and established more clearly the relationship which obtains between God and his son. So the commentator then says individuals should seek Jesus, we ought to seek Jesus in the same way that one somebody does what? This was mentioned. Right. This was mentioned there in the text. Uh, the way one seeks light, when you're in the dark, you're wanting some light. So you can see where you are and what's going on and where to go. So in the same way that we seek light when in darkness, that's the way we ought to be seeking Jesus. So thankfully, God's plan <clears throat> has been revealed to us. And through all the inspired writers in the Bible, in the New Testament, we have the ability to know not only what Jesus did for us, but what he expects from us, of us. 2 Peter 1.20, there in our text, God's plan is not of any private interpretation. What does that mean? Right. Scripture does not originate from the prophet, some prophet's interpretation of it. Uh, holy men of God, verse 21, spoke as they were moved. How? By the, by the Holy Spirit. Directly by the Holy Spirit. Does anybody have any thoughts or comments there about that section? Time's about to get away from us. Uh, but that's got the text finished. Right, look at the applications here on 99. First one says truth can be obtained, uh, as we said, both through personal experience <clears throat> and credible testimony. Peter urges his audience to heed his admonition to follow Jesus because of what he witnessed when he saw and heard Jesus there at the Transfiguration. And, of course, he gives us an eyewitness account of it. And he and John made a similar argument before the Sanhedrin in Acts 4. They argued, here's what they said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, and here's the key statement, for we cannot but speak the things which we have what? Seen and heard. And then the second application there, our lesson text provides us with a beautiful affirmation of the inspiration of the scripture. Prophets did not invent their own prophecies, they spoke by the Holy Spirit. The same thing is true of those who wrote God's message. God used a variety of individuals to communicate everything he wanted to say to humanity. In this last statement, this is important. God used a variety of individuals to communicate everything he wanted to say to humanity in exactly the way he wanted to say it. And that's what we have in the, in the scriptures. So anybody have any thoughts or comments about the lesson? we got questions on 100, but I think we've already covered all those and answered those. So thank you for your attention and participation today. hope the lesson has been 
beneficial to you. So let's close today with a prayer. Father, we're thankful this morning for our time that we spend in Bible study uh, together. And Father, we pray that our studies and our classes are pleasing in your sight and always correct according to your word. Father, we pray that you might be with us today in our worship period. Help us to worship today in spirit and in truth. Be with us, Father, throughout this coming week. Father, we pray that you might be with and remember those of our number that are sick today and those that are having health issues, those who have lost loved ones in recent, recent weeks and months even. Be with us, Father, and continue with us every day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.